0: I was looking up Adam and Eve in one of the encyclopedias I have recently, and they referred to the Genesis account as a myth, the Bible folklore, the Bible legend. It is no myth, and it is not folklore, and it is not legend. It is the actual event in human history that is the most significant event outside of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. You have in Scripture Adam as the representative of the entire human race. And when he sinned, God put the full blame, the full blame for human sin directly on his shoulders. All the unborn generations of mankind were in Adam when he sinned. Paul is referring to this very directly in Romans chapter 5, Theologians speak of this whole idea of Adam acting on our behalf, representing us in a twofold way, basically, spiritually and physically. They speak of man as being an Adam both federally and seminally. That is to say, that Adam both represented us and literally contained us, genetically. All of us directly came from Adam. We were literally, genetically in Adam when he sinned. So that Adam was created in the likeness and the image of God and fell, and we were in him and fell with him. If you can look with me at Genesis 126, God said, here is the Godhead working. God said let us make man in our image here you have the trinity at work according to our likeness so Genesis one twenty seven. so God created man in his notice the terminology in his own image and in the image of God he created him male and female he created them however what happens is when Adam sins and he falls he falls from that image of God And as you begin to see him beget his offspring and his family, if you go to Genesis 5-3, there is an interesting positioning of those words likeness and image. Genesis 5-3 says, And Adam, as he began his family, if you connect these phrases, Adam begot a son, notice, in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth what's the point the point is that when Adam sinned when Adam fell he fell from the image of God in which he was created as he began to have babies they were born in the image of Adam in his fallenness they were born in his likeness in terms of sinfulness Now it's not in the image of God, now it's in the image of Adam, a fallen, sinful human being, thus born sinful. In Genesis 2.17, you have God's clear word. In the garden, in paradise, man was in a state of innocence, sinlessness. He had a clearly articulated law from God. When God gave the law on the mountaintop to Moses, it was not the first time God articulated his law. In the book of Genesis, you find there is a clearly articulated law. And that is, the day you eat of the tree, you will die. That's the law. Do anything else you want to do, but that's the law. So God's clearly articulated word and law here is, you eat, you die. But then comes the clear... However, very deceptive lie of the devil if you turn to Genesis 3 4. The devil, the form of the serpent here, said to the woman, You shall not surely die. But we know what happened. We know that the moment Adam sinned, he died spiritually. Years later, he died physically as well. And that dreaded part of the curse that came as a result of Adam's sin and spread to all mankind is found in Genesis 3.19 where God says, For dust you are, and to the dust you will return. That was a new thing. When God created Adam from the dust, he was to live forever. But he said, you eat of the tree, you rebel against me, you will die. And now comes a fulfillment. You came from the dust, you're going back. You will die. All of your offspring will die because of your sin. This is the reality that Paul points to in Romans chapter 5 just keep your place in Genesis, if you like. We'll be back there. Stick your bulletin or your thumb or something in there. And go over to Romans now. And as we come to Romans chapter 5, looking at verses 12 down to 21, moving our way through this great epistle, Paul has been deep into his teaching on justification by faith ever since chapter 3. The latter part of chapter 3. And now he comes to wrap that up. And having taught what he did, there is now a question that would be raised in the thinking of those reading this epistle, discussing it, preaching it, thinking about it, and so on. And Paul moves to his conclusion and he wants to answer that question that he knows would be remaining in the minds of the listeners, the readers. Paul the Apostle is what you could call the master of audience analysis. Part of being a good communicator is to analyze your audience, to work through their thinking and how they're going to respond to what you want to communicate to kind of get into their heads and anticipate their questions and then answer them. Having come this far, having taught what he did, Paul anticipates this question, which would be this. And you have to have thought this question if you're a Christian. Somehow you've had to work your way through this. The question is, how is it that one man could be the cause, one man could be the cause of so many being made right with God. How could that be? In other words, don't we have to accomplish something on our end? Isn't there some kind of work that we have to do to join with it? How could just one man's act, apart from our acts, affect us all in such a way that we could be Saved and forgiven in the way that we are in Christ? How could that possibly be? Well, in order to answer that question, Paul draws an analogy between Adam and Jesus Christ. And he compares the two. He positions them as, really, God positions them. When God looks at the human race, he is concerned mainly with two men. Adam and Christ the law comes in with Moses it's sort of complementary it articulates and defines certain sins but in the long term sense of it all God looking at the human race is concerned with two men the first Adam and the second Jesus Christ and Adam both representing the human race and so he begins to draw an analogy between the two This passage is viewed by many as the hardest in all of Romans, and I would agree. We're about to read it, and you will agree when we read it. It is deep. It is intensely specific. Paul is very precise in his thinking and his terms. One of the difficulties that we have in the passage is that you have Adam representing the entire human race over here. But he is, in the end, just a man. Then you have the second Adam, Jesus Christ, representing the entire human race, but he is, in the end, 100% God. So to draw the analogy between the two men and the effect of each, the analogy of one man representing the human race here and one here, that in itself is simple. When he gets into the details of the effects of the two because you're dealing with God over here in Christ and just a man here, that is where the analogy really basically ends and the complications of the passage begin because of the magnitude of Christ's work. So as I told you before, you're going to have to think with me through this passage. Let's read it together. Pay very close attention as we read through it. And you'll see the intricacies of it and why it is difficult. Though in the end the message is simple but not simplistic. In verse 12 Paul writes and he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and then death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. That statement all by itself is obviously difficult. He says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. Now it's becoming more complicated. I have spent hours and hours and hours just reading that. How do you... We have an analogy here, but the free gift is not like. And what's the gift of Adam anyway? For if by one man's offense, verse 15, many died, much more, the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many... Now, if I could just jump in here. Give you a break. Because we're only halfway through the passage. We have the terms in here, many and all. This will help. If you can get this all together in your head, you will have it definitely in a nutshell. It's a joke. You're so preoccupied with the passage, you didn't get my joke. But if you can get this, it'll help. In the long run, you have here the term used with Adam of many. Adam's one act affected many, but in reality, the many is all. Because all die. All are affected by Adam. You have the term many used of Christ. At some points, the many is many, at other points, the many is all. But in the end, really, with Christ, Whether he uses the term all or many, it's many, not all. told you you're going to have to think. You with me? So Adam's one act affected all. Christ's one act offers the way to all, but really in the end only affects the many, only those that will come. Does that make sense? So the many is all and the all is many, but not always all the time. Don't worry about it. Let's go on. Some great writer said, let the children out to play in difficult sermons and then bring them back from recess and work them again. So let's go on. So, we read in verse 16, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for judgment. the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And there, really, the all is many. As we said, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, which is really all. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, which is really many, though the offer goes out to all. Moreover, the law entered. In case you're thinking, where does Mosaic law end with all this? The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, we have our work cut out for us. But it is well worth the effort. Here is the concept of one man representing the human race. Here is the contrast of those individuals. And it is great. There is a comparison of the effect of their act, and then there is the conclusion as he draws it all together, reigning in life through the grace of God in Christ. Let's begin with this concept, and I've really tried to warm your thoughts up to it already to make it more palatable for your thinking. The concept comes in this phrase in verse 12, Through one man. Here Paul introduces the concept of one man's act affecting many. He tends to go on to show how Christ's act affected so many, but he breaks off into a digression about Adam's sin. Then he comes back to his point. And here is a fourfold flow of logic, you could say, as it relates to Adam and what happened, on the effects of Adam on the human race. And you can follow it right through verse 12. To begin with, it says, Sin entered the world through one man. I want to draw your attention to that phrase, through one man. To understand that is to understand the beginning of why there is a need for salvation for all men. The first thought is that it was one man. One man that brought sin into the world. The second thought here is that sin, if you look carefully, sin did not originate with him. That is important to see as well. Notice it says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. It doesn't say sin began with him. Sin entered to imply that it was already there. Where did it enter from? Where it originated. Where did sin originate? Not with Adam. But with who? Satan. If you're quick with your fingers, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. And it's good to know this, to know where the Bible speaks about the rebellion and fall of Satan. Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14. Satan was one of the highest created beings. We speak of the archangels. We know them as Michael and Gabriel. He was evidently of that caliber. Thus he had a preeminent place among the holy angels, but he wasn't satisfied with that. And so you have the fivefold I wills of his fallen rebellion. And in verse 13, God says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, and I will be like the most high God. I am going to be God. So he led a rebellion. And it had at its roots pride. The original sin had at its roots pride, obviously, here. The effect of that was to pollute one-third of the holy angels, and they rebelled with him. Jesus, speaking of this in Luke 10.18, said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. What happened was, that is where sin originated... When man chose to follow Satan instead of God, Satan's sin entered into man. He effectively joined that original rebellion by following Satan. The promise that Satan made to man was the same he made to the holy angels, Godhood. So that it was because of Satan's sin, and this is critical, this is where hell comes from. If anybody ever says, why is there hell? How could a God of love create hell for the man that he created? The answer is that God did not create hell for man. God created hell for Satan and the angels that rebelled with him. And God in his sovereignty and wisdom has chosen no way back for them. There is no salvation for the fallen angels. There is only the fixed reality of eternal hell. Now because sin entered the world through this one man, the sin of Satan entered into the human stream and Adam chose to obey the devil, to follow the devil rather than God. Adam's offspring thus faces the same Punishment as the devil because he's joined the rebellion. Going to the same place of punishment. Hell was created for Satan and his angels, not man. But when man chose to join the rebellion, he goes there too. If his sins are unforgiven. In Revelation 20 verse 10, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever. So Satan himself added to his own sin of leading one-third of the holy angels in rebellion to God. He added to that sin the sin of leading the human race into rebellion against God. So he will be tormented day and night forever. And so will those that choose to follow him. Sin entered the world through one man, and it came originally from Satan to that man. Now, the next thing is the result. Death then entered. After sin entered, death entered. In Romans 5.12 again, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, death entered the world through sin. The immediate result of man's sin was that it led to spiritual death. God said, The day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And the moment he ate, he did die spiritually, severed from that fellowship with God. And man is born severed from that fellowship with God. Death begets death. Thus, death spread. Death entered. And then physical death came about as well. Paul says, Death spread to all men. Twofold death, really born spiritually dead and dying physically. If you ever wonder where did death come from, this is where it came from. It's part of the curse. To the dust you will return. Why does everybody die? Because Adam sinned. And God said all would die that sinned. And we were in him when he sinned, so we all die physically and were born spiritually dead. Death entered the world through one man, But death spread to all men. I look at it like this. If you had a man who was polluted with toxic waste, running a factory that was pumping toxic waste into a stream, and from that stream drank all the humans from every place around, they would all be infected with the toxic waste as well. They would all, eventually all of them, die. It's like that We are born polluted We die Give you another example More modern day If you had one man with AIDS And he gave it to his wife And they had kids The kids would be born with AIDS And every one of them would die Give you a physical example That's a horrible illustration But it is not even close to being as horrible To the reality of dying Simply because you won't repent of your sins and be saved by the grace of God in Christ. So sin entered the world through one man. Death entered through sin. Death spread to all men. The result is that death then reigns over all. Death is called the king of terrors for every good reason. If you read the account of men that have died without Christ... Herbert Lockler has written a book called The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. And it records famous people in their last uttered remarks and cries that don't know Christ as they die. The shrieks, the horror of it all. And to contrast that with great saints of God dying and the bliss, the peace, the comfort. Death is the king of all terrors. It reigns over all. Men live all their lives in the fear of death, the Bible says. So in verse 13, in Romans 5, it says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now he's, he's addressing the thinking of somebody really sharp, who knows that there wasn't specific articulated law, as in the Ten Commandments, Until the time of Moses. What about that great gap of history? Well, back to Adam. Well, the idea is that you see people dying anyway. How could God be punishing them when there's no articulated law? Well, the reality is is that the law of Moses was only given to articulate specifics sort of like the little old lady in church who went to the pastor very concerned after a sermon and he had read the Ten Commandments. And she said, I don't like to hear the Ten Commandments read in church. I think it's an awful thing. He said, why? He said, because it puts too many bad ideas in people's heads of things they might want to try. See, the law came to make specific, show the specifics of this sin, but the sin was already there. And so that is why men were dying anyway all the while, even though the law hadn't been given. The law was complementary. It came and it went. And in the end, the law is not a major factor at all. The major factor from God's point of view in the end is Adam and Christ and what you do with one or the other. That's the major factor. So death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. Now a more specific question arises, and I think this is great for, to understand in terms of witnessing, and in terms of your own peace of mind. How can we know for sure that we are all connected to and affected by Adam's transgression? I mean, it's obviously stated, but how can we know that for sure? Well, the proof is right here in Paul's text. The proof is Everybody dies. If you're still in Genesis with your thumb or a paper or something, can you look at Genesis 5 with me? Where's the proof that we're all connected to Adam? Somebody says. Proof is all over the place. In Genesis 5 5, it says, In all the days of Adam that he lived were 930 years, and what does it say? He died. In verse 8 All the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Verse 11 And the days of Enos were 920. All the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Verse 27 All the days of Methuselah were 960 and 9 years and he died. And verse 31 All the days of Lamech were 770 and 7 years and he died. See, the penalty for sin is death to all who have it. All the offspring of Adam are born with Adam's defiled, polluted, sinful nature. They all die. How do we know we're all connected to Adam? Because everybody dies. That's the point. That's the point. And thus, held accountable by God for sin because born in sin. So they died even when sins were not being specifically imputed. That would be the whole time period from Adam to the flood and then on up to Moses, people dying. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. doesn't mean that God didn't hold them accountable. It just means that the specifics were not articulated. So it's interesting that He is not saying here they were not held guilty for their sins. He is saying that they were dying because they were held guilty for sin, period. Born in sin. It's an important thought. Because it shows that man is inherently born a sinner. You're born that way. Why is that important? Well, there are those that say that you... Are not born a sinner, but then you choose to sin so you become a sinner. That is a heresy. The Bible doesn't teach that. You are born a sinner. That is why you sin. You don't sin and become a sinner. You're born a sinner. That is why you sin. Those of you that have kids, did you have to teach them how to sin? Did you take them through a lying seminar? Or a mine seminar to teach them to be selfish? No. They're just that way. Leave them alone and they'll grow up to be another Charles Manson. Without love, without the right guidance, you end up with a Charles Manson who grew up like that. That's man. He's born in sin. To say that man is born not a sinner and becomes one because he sins is a lie. You sin because you're a sinner. And we do it because we are connected to Adam, And we were genetically there in him. And we are born in sin. That's why even little babies die. Everybody dies eventually. So in the end, here's the compound guilt. Born in sin from your father, Adam. But then going on to commit acts of sin. Makes you doubly guilty and thus desperately in need of a Savior. You see how this all lands right in your lap? Desperately in need of a Savior. So the concept of how one man has affected us. Now we come to the contrast. The contrast. We are looking here at a type. It says in verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. In other words, didn't go eat of a tree and die, but died because of the sin within them. Who is a type of him who was to come. In the sense of one man representing the entire human race, but he is a reverse type. Because... Jesus Christ is so different. And that is where the difficulties of the passage come in. For example, 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, was made a quickening spirit. Now, as we move through this passage, it seems like there's a lot of redundancy here. It seems like he keeps saying the same thing. But I must tell you that it only seems like that. What seems like redundancy is really the tendency and the characteristic of Paul toward what you could call an eloquent fullness. Paul is extremely precise. So where you think it's just redundancy, he's just saying the same thing over and over, he is not. Every time he repeats the concept, there's a new, fresh nuance attached to it, giving more light on this whole idea of one man affecting all and the need for salvation as a result. So in looking at Adam, we're looking at a type of Christ, basically in reverse. We're also then here looking at the contrast of the types. And there are three. We'll move through these fairly quickly. There's the contrast of the results, and I love this. In verse 15, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace by, of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The free gift is not like the offense. Basically, Adam's gift to you is what? death, sin. So obviously Christ's gift is not like his. It's the opposite. The gift of grace comes from Christ by the one man who causes so many to live. The contrast of results is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. When Adam heard the temptation of the devil... You will become as gods. Did he get the result he thought he was going to get? No. Adam's act was not able to produce Adam's desired result. Christ's act produced in a super abounding way his desired result. So there's a contrast of results. Adam's act did not produce what he wanted. He wanted Godhood. What did he get? Death, sin, a curse upon the human race. He did not get what he wanted. But Christ's act produced the exact results promised. The grace of God abounding to many. What a blessed thing. Another thing about this is that The result is is so different because of what we are given in Christ. He doesn't just reverse what Adam did. To simply reverse it would be to simply forgive us. But he doesn't just reverse it. He forgives us and then he lavishes life upon us here and now. I'm not just forgiven when I come to Christ, I'm given a whole new life. I reign in life. Suddenly I have power over sin I never had before. I have the power to say no, whereas I was powerless to say no before. I have the life of God in my soul. I live under grace. I have the promise of heaven. The results are so tremendous. That is why the much mores. Someone has well written, But for grace my soul had perished, withered as the desert sand. Gone to shadows and tormented, but for grace's perfect plan, but for God's unceasing mercy, but for Calvary's sacrifice, I had wandered blind and thirsting, fell to Satan's grim device. But the blessed blood of Jesus, shed upon that cruel tree, called me from the lingering shadows, saved my soul and rescued me. But for grace, O oh, grace perfected, but for love's undying flame. I had never hoped in Jesus, never had even known his name. You know, it is amazing, just amazing, to contemplate what God has done here. If one man's sin could condemn us all, does that tell you what God thinks about sin? Follow me on that into the next thought. We've seen the contrast of results. Now we come to the contrast in quantity. Verse 16, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. The gift is not like the one who sinned. In other words, Christ's gift is the opposite of Adam's gift. Adam's one offense causes all to be condemned. Christ's one act causes all who will come to be freed and graced. But here is the amazing thing. To overturn the work of Adam, Jesus had to deal with the one sin that was enough to condemn us all. But you see, because of the fact we're born in sin and then we snowball into it throughout our lives, you've got sin upon sin upon sin in every life. So to overturn it all, he had to deal with the plethora, the multitude of sins piled up so that the work he did of grace was unimaginable. The the practical outworking of this is to see that God hates sin so much that one sin condemned the whole human race. You know, you think you might wait around and say, look, rack up a few, and I'll do something about it. You know, I'm good. I'm a good God, 5 or 6 or 10 or 12, and then I'll judge you. And I'll judge you, I'll give you a bad back. I'll judge you, make you go through life with one eye. I'll judge you, you'll limp through your life. No. One sin you die utterly, spiritually, physically, and all your offspring will die. One sin. So I tell you how holy God is and how much He hates sin. Think about your sins this week. Any one of them is enough to condemn the whole human race forever. All of them collectively. Think of how God feels about it. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. The only thing, and here's where we get to the good part, with the much more and the abounding, the only thing stronger than God's hatred for sin, a holy God, is His love for the sinner. Because this same God that would condemn the human race to death for one sin became a man. And didn't just bear the one sin, but all the resulting sins as well. From many offenses comes the justification. Bore all of that. He hates sin so much. One sin curses the whole human race, but that same God loves the sinner so much He will bear that sin and all the other sins in our place to die for us, to bring us freedom and forgiveness. Does that tell you anything about His love? Ooh, I love it. The moment in the sermon where you reflect on your own sin and your sizzling. And the moment in the sermon where you turn to reflect on the love of God who paid the price for your sin, and now you're just bathing in the grace of God and thanking God for his salvation. These truths are monumental here. What Christ did for us is incomprehensible. Absolutely, overwhelmingly much more. The contrast of the results, the contrast in quantity, and now we come to the last thing for today. Contrast in certainties. I love this. Each man's act brings a certain or fixed result. Verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Adam gives you a reign, and reign of death. Christ gives you a reign, the reign of life and grace. Adam's act brought a certain result, death. Christ's act brings a certain result, salvation. Now here's where it gets really good. Adam's act, certain as it is, can be pierced, can be penetrated, can be overthrown. Someone else was able to come along and overthrow it. Take it away from him, as it were. Christ. Take away the effects. But Christ, the second man, the second Adam, His act cannot be overturned. His gift cannot be penetrated. It cannot be taken from the one who receives it. When you are born again, when you are filled with the life of God in your soul, when He fuses His life with your soul, when He saves you, when He forgives you, when He gives you eternal life, when He says, I will give you the Holy Spirit and He will abide with you forever, that certainty cannot ever be overturned. To give you a sneak preview of Romans 8, what shall separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ? And he lists every possible event, circumstance, tragedy, sin, your own weakness, everything, and he said nothing. The certainty of Christ far outweighs the certainty of Adam, doesn't it? Thank God. Do you have that certainty in your life? Have you been forgiven for your sins? If you really know the Lord, you're really saved, you're really Christ, and you are Christ, and no Man, devil or circumstance can pluck you from Christ's hands wrench you from the grip of the father he says his arms are around you and the father's arms are around you that's a double wall of security that nothing can ever penetrate thank God for that rest in that bathe in that and if you are without Christ today what are you going to do about it you're going to die face it You will go to where every demon who rebelled against God is going to go. Because you make your choice with them. You stand with Adam. You make the same choice. Unless today you make your choice to turn from your sin and follow Christ. Turn from the one certainty to the other. Blessed certainty of heaven forever. You say, how do I do it? You just tell Christ right now, I want to turn from my sin and follow you. I want to make my choice for you. Thanks for the opportunity. Forgive me now. Fill me with your life. Lead me. Guide me. I will follow you. And he will rush in to do just that. But you must open your heart and invite him in because he's not going to kick the door down. To sit and listen to these realities, to know you're going to die, to know where all men will go, when they die and to do nothing about it is insanity do not allow yourself to lay your head on your pillow tonight without giving your life to Christ receiving forgiveness from him how could you go another moment in some supposed fabricated peace with your soul's eternity left undone when he has done it all for you he loves you so much respond to that love give your life to him today enter into new life with Christ today and join the ranks of those who are certain of where they're going forever when they die, and that is heaven, and join those who are experiencing life, reigning in life and grace now. That is true life. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, work your work in every heart here today. Draw those to you that you would have to come even as you've drawn so many. Lord, we bless and praise you for these things. Unfold them in a continuing way. Unravel them to our hearts and minds. Strengthen us in the realities of our salvation and our joy in you. And we ask it in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for us. Amen.